Welcome to Talent Hub Talk. I am Ben Duncan, and this is a place where prominent and inspirational figures from both the local ANZ and global Salesforce Ohana share their stories. In today's episode, I am delighted to be joined by Lars Malmquist, Salesforce CTA and twice published author. Lars and I discussed so many different topics in this episode, including his passion for studying, his career through consulting, launching and scaling a Salesforce services business that became a product business, becoming a CTA, writing two Salesforce books, and much, much more. Lars blew me away with all that he has achieved in his career, and I genuinely question when he finds time to sleep. A really, really interesting episode, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Lars, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I, I'm really excited because you've got a very um, broad background. You've done a lot in your career. So I'm, I'm really excited to unpick that and understand how you've kind of got to where you are today and, and some of the decisions you've made along the way. If you've listened to this before, I'm sure you'll know what I'm going to ask first which is, is to go right back to the beginning and, and unpick a bit about what your early career aspirations were and um, I guess why you chose to pursue the, the education that you did. It's actually a bit of a chance occurrence, my career choice, because uh, when I was growing up, um, I wanted to be a lawyer and then join the Foreign Service. I had a very, very clear plan about that for many, many years. And then what happened was that you had the dot-com boom in the late uh, 90s, where, you know, the internet was just taking off. Everybody was uh, really excited about it. And I happened to be, I guess, the first generation growing up with computers, and I was really good at programming. And at that point, if you happen to know how to how to do some code and uh, create some websites and uh, things like that, uh, you were already in high demand, right? So I actually started uh, a company with a friend in my last year of, uh, of secondary school, which did uh, websites and uh, network configuration for, for companies in the greater Copenhagen area. And then uh, we parlayed that into sort of quite good jobs with, uh, with large consultancies. And in my case, what is now so Presteria. That only occurred because at the point when I was 17, 18, anybody who had any programming skills were in that high demand, right? Otherwise, I would probably be a lawyer today. To have programming skills at 17, 18 back then must have been rare. Like, was it because it's, you wouldn't typically fall into having programming skills unless you have a bit of a passion for technology already? No, it's true. And I mean, I grew up with computers. I got my first computer when I was six, and my, uh, my big brother had one even before that that I loved to, loved to play with. When you were in the 80s and you were doing anything with computers, you pretty much had to develop uh, technical skills in order to get it to do what you wanted it to do, right? You needed to do lots of configuration and tweaking. And, you know, that very easily, I think, for a lot of people led into, into also doing some programming because um, it just made things easier, to be honest. Did you then um, carry on the business through education? Like, did you go and do formal, um, a formal degree um, while kind of maintaining that business? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm up to nine university degrees now. And I've actually only ever been a full-time student for a single year when I did my, uh, my full-time MBA. So for the rest of it, I've started as a programmer and I quickly, you know, I quickly realized that there was lots of background that I didn't have, right? I initially, I did um, a sort of a diploma course in um, programming and, uh, and computer science sort of at night school. And then, you know, I did that and I thought, well, you know, I actually want to learn some more. So I started taking all of these random courses, <laughs> which eventually ended up uh, with, a, 
with degrees in uh, in social anthropology. And then I sort of went back from there and uh, did technology management and mathematics and uh, just recently completed my, my PhD in computer science. So it's all a big mash. And it's kind of just because once I got into that habit of studying next to work, I never stopped it, right? So it's kind of always something I've done on the side to sort of keep my my mind fresh, as it were. So yeah, it uh, you know my educational bank background ranges from uh, medieval studies to to a PhD in computer science. So you can sort of take it from there. There's not a lot of consistency to it. Yeah. So like, how how have you typically chosen what you're going to study next? Just something that you you're interested in? I tend to go back and forth, right? So um, obviously the first uh, the first degree I did I did because it was I felt it was necessary to get a to get a formal background in the field that I was working, right? Then I thought, well, you know, now I've done that, let me just explore the field a bit. Sort of that focused me in over time, uh, it basically just based on passion. Then after that, I went back to something, well, now I actually, I'm at a level of my career where, you know, I may want to go into management and stuff like that. So I started with the, with the technology management. Then after the technology management, I did my MBA and we started the company. So I took a little bit of a break for a few, few years. But uh, when I got back from that, then it was, you know, back to like, I've kind of reached a, a good point in my career. Let, let me do something that's, uh, that's interesting. So it's, it, it alternates. And I guess it's, um, I've always prioritized the useful studies in order to sort of reach a new stage, right? And then once you're at that stage, you can sort of relax a bit and explore and, you know, let your intellectual curiosity run wild a little bit. I think that's how I describe it. So I don't want to jump ahead of, of what I have planned, but what just came to my mind there, so you've done your PhD in computer science and also you've done your CTA, which took more out of you? Oh, definitely the PhD, but they're very different, they're very different beasts, right? The CTA is very intense in terms of like the preparation for the exam, right? You know, it is just, it's just grueling. But the, the PhD, it is a very big writing project and you need to, to be very rigorous in what you write. And there's all of this, the, this stuff that goes in. So you need to sustain the interest over time in a way where, you know, for the CCA, there's a concrete payoff, right? I'm, gonna, I'm prepping for the, for the review board. I'm going to pass the review board. I know pretty much exactly what, what I need to nail, right? So you can, you can sort of go at it with a lot of passion and uh, energy, whereas with the, the PhD, you kind of need to find a way of retaining and renewing that energy over time, I guess. <laughs> At least that's how it was for me. Obviously, your early days, you were a programmer, you, you were passionate about um, coding, you, you found this kind of niche in the, the early days of the dot-com boom to, to find your way. You moved into architecture. How did you make that transition? And back then, what were you working on? What kind of projects were you working on? So my early career was in uh, what's now known as content management systems. Basically, it was systems to manage web content for, for larger websites. And back then, that was not a standard system. That was something you kind of built with the client. The agency you were working for would have their own uh, little variant that they used for their specific clients. These days, it's, it's, you know, they're pretty standard systems, right? Is OpenText a con content management system? Yeah, OpenText, for instance, um, is an example of uh, something that's you know, popular today. Salesforce has a CMS, right? Salesforce, has, Salesforce CMS is a thing. You know, Adobe Experience Manager has a, has a content management system. Back then, there were millions and everybody were, were, were making them. I actually um, became an, an architect, as it were, when I joined um, a startup um, in the digital media space. So I moved from managing just web content to effectively managing digital assets. So digital asset management was brand new at that time. And it was basically a streaming platform. Um, that uh, 
was focused on sort of the B2B space. So we did a lot of uh, things like investor relations videos and that sort of things, platforms for like one of our customers were, was the stock exchange, right? So the stock exchange used our software to uh, broadcast all of the, the board meetings for the companies in Denmark and stuff like that. As, as is often the case with uh, startups, you just, you know, you come in a little bit above your pay grade, to be honest. So, <laughs> so that's how I got into architecture, because, you know, there, there weren't anybody else who was going to do their overall system architecture for the thing. So it fell to me and I had to learn um, as, as I went along. You say there that you kind of fell into it. When did you feel that you were an architect then? As soon as you had the job title, is that, that how it worked? I definitely got the job title before I knew how to, got the, how to do the job. <laughs> I think that, that's true, true for a lot of people. I think it took a couple of, couple of years of doing the work. I think I made a lot of mistakes in, in the early days. And, uh, you know, you think back and you think, ah, not, not the greatest choices I made. But you also learn from that, right? You know, it works out. Sometimes it, uh, it requires late nights of refactoring bad solutions. And sometimes you end up with like just doing something that seems so clever in your mind and then you try to do it and it just doesn't work in practice. So all, all of those things happened and uh, you learn from them and you move on. I guess towards the end of my stint with that startup, I, I, I was feeling confident about my general architecture skills, but it took a little while. It also took a lot of studying, right? Yeah. Study seems to be something you, you enjoy, I guess. that's um, So you'll always throw yourself into that to better yourself. But then you moved into strategy consulting, which, um, you know, from the outside, it seems like an interesting move. And, and what was the, what drove that, I guess? And, and, um, and, and what did you learn as a strategy consultant that you still kind of utilize to this day? Strategy consulting was kind of an outgrowth of this uh, company, Arcus, that we did, right? So we did some strategy consulting engagement during the MBA I did at Cambridge. And... Um, you know, we were out and we helped some, like you kind of learn the skill set and you learn how to help some companies. And actually, it was one of those projects that then led to me and a colleague from, from that program founding the company that I ran for 10 years called Arcus, which you can talk more about later. Arcus effectively, at the, in the beginning, was a strategy consulting company, right? We had some offerings around how to apply cloud computing and how to, uh, how to save uh, companies money using like new, new technologies. And we had a framework for that. And that was sort of the, the, the basis of how we, how we built, the, built the company. So for me, it was, it was quite a big shift from, you know, technical architecture. I had sort of made an intermediate step in between because um, my job immediately before I was um, effectively moved into a pre-sales architecture role where I led a development team, but I was also sort of in charge of pre-sales. So I had done a bunch of pre-sales consulting in the, in the couple of years leading up to that, but I still wasn't, uh, wasn't strategy consulting. So that was sort of a gradual shift into it. But I mean, when you come from a technical background and you're used to, you know, delivering a system and then instead you're delivering a report and you're delivering some spreadsheets, I guess it's a different beast. You approach it differently. You need a different toolkit, right? You need to focus much more on the client engagement, on the quality of the deliverables, on um, how you present it, on what sensitivities there are around it. You need to have very structured frameworks for, for how you do things. But you also need to be able to adapt uh, very quickly to sort of the level that your client has. So I think that whole client-focused skill set that you get for it and, and how you communicate effectively with clients and how you can find sort of structured ways of helping them where they are. I guess for me, that was sort of the, 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 the key takeaways um, coming from a technical um, background where you'd, you could be very focused on the, on the specific solution and whether it's technically right and whether, you know, it's going to meet all of these uh, these architectural concerns that you've got for it and all of that. And maybe you're not so focused on, well, 
you know, what's the business value? How is it going to fit? How am I going to actually get the end users to adopt it? Is this actually solving the real problem or have you been told, you know, the wrong problem to solve, right? So, so those are kinds of things that you don't often think about when you're in a purely technical role, which you learn to think about when you move into a consulting role. Yeah, that makes sense. So what came first then? Um, I'm guessing Ar- Arcus came before Salesforce for you. It did, yeah. There's a lot of coincidence here, but it, it's actually also a little bit random that I got into Salesforce. We were moving into this space and we, uh, for the first couple of years, we just did strategy consulting around the sort of the general cloud space. We started seeing like we were very public sector focused and we started seeing some um, some opportunities there where we actually wanted to build some software to try to address some of the issues. Right. So what we could see was that there were a bunch of legacy systems and they weren't really moving. Right. They weren't making a transition towards the new uh, software as a service model or anything like that. They were kind of just happy sitting on 10, 20 year old uh, technology stacks and, uh, you know, leveraging the uh, the cash flow from that. So we figure, okay, here are some some opportunities where we actually can go in and uh, and make a real difference, make some money for ourselves, but also save some money for our clients. And we obviously we needed a platform for that, right? My background at the at the time was from uh, from basically a Microsoft.NET house. So I figured, you know, I'm going to build it with .NET, probably use some SharePoint, some uh, some BizTalk, uh, stitch it all together. And then we met Salesforce at a client. And we had a client who was just really excited about it because they brought it in and they started configuring it and you could do all these things. You know, Force.com was relatively fresh off the press and they were starting to build little apps in Force.com. And we looked at it and we're going like, okay, this is fast. And we, we, we did some, some testing on it and we basically found that, you know, compared to the .NET stack that we were using, we could probably build things three to four times as quickly on, on Salesforce as, uh, as we could on .NET. And then, you know, the rest is history, as, we, uh, as it were. We adopted Salesforce as our principal technology platform along with, uh, with Amazon Web Services for the stuff that couldn't fit on Salesforce. You know, we never looked back. It was, it was just a better choice. When would that have been, roughly? 2011. Okay, yeah, so still like relatively early in the Salesforce journey, 11 years in or so since Salesforce founded. Yeah, I think I think Force.com had maybe been out for two years at the time. Yeah, okay. So you set up this business as a strategy consultancy, then you kind of became more of a services business. How did that business evolve? Five years into it, we made a decision to sort of pivot properly into products, right? And we did a big investment. We reinvested a ton of money that we'd made on the on the consulting side and on the services side. And we threw that into a product roadmap for, you know, our particular little uh, sector, you know, hoping to basically come in with a market leading uh, software as a service solution that would just blow everything else out of the water. And I guess, you know, it kind of did that technologically, but we also really underestimated how hard it is to build a product business, right? You know, we were used to a services business, and that was relatively easy to run in the sense that we had very, we had very good cash flow, right? We had, you know, there's always money coming in from people being sold out, and that was, uh, that was quite nice. And obviously, with with product, you are investing a lot of money in building the IP. We were in a in a space where it's kind of enterprise grade functionality, so we did need to to get to quite a high level of maturity. And I think we underestimated just how high that bar was. So you know, we had to go out and uh, get a lot of uh, private equity money and stuff like that in order to actually. Uh, actually scaled to the level that we needed. I mean, eventually it, 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 it worked out, but, but it was a tough journey. You were in London at this point, right? I was in London. I was um, moved to the UK in 2008 and stayed until uh, 2019. 
And the business, from my research, was like a hundred people. Like it was a decent-sized organization. Like as you mentioned, yeah, still, 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 it's a it's a sizable organization. We've sold uh, some of the parts off, so it's a little bit smaller now because we've sold some of the service, uh, like managed services uh, parts of the business off to 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 fund some of the other stuff. So it's it's, it's a bit smaller now, but yeah, it was a hundred odd people. Yeah. What was the biggest challenge about building a product business? It was the capitalization of it and also also keeping productivity and hiring quality as you scale, right? It's again with a services business, when you've got a 20 person consultancy, you know how good everybody is, you know if you can sell them out or not, you know how clients respond, right? So you've got a very good, you know, feel for the business. And when you then go to a hundred people where they're working on different products, you can't keep it all in your head. You need processes and structures around that in order to make it work. And that's obviously you know, it's, it's a big transition, right? It doesn't happen by itself. I've not had too many guests that have gone through the private equity process before. What, like, obviously it's different in every country and depending on, on the amount you're trying to raise and things like that. But do you look back through that process fondly or, or was that a, a stressful time in your life? Like initially, it was actually fine, right? Because we had a good uh, roadmap. We had a business that had a good, good uh, funding. What made it difficult was then when we figured out that we hadn't raised enough money, right? The second and third rounds were painful. The first round was fine. So I would I would recommend that if you if you are going down that route, you know, raise enough money on the first fundraise. Don't be afraid to to, to raise more than you than you think you need because uh, we made that mistake and that. I mean, it obviously worked out, but it is with some scars. Obviously, there are lots of people out there that look to bootstrap a business um, and get as far as they can without doing that. Now, obviously, you got to a big scale, right? 100 people is a big sized organization. Was that ever the vision not to go down the the P route or yeah, well, obviously, like we built the we built the services business by bootstrapping, right? And I think services businesses, you know, that's what you do. There's no reason to uh, to fundraise because if you're any good at what you do, you can you can fund it. You can fund the growth from cash flow and maybe a, maybe a bank loan to to just bridge a little bit of extra hiring if you if you need to. For services businesses, definitely don't you know raise money. I mean, I wouldn't don't 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 see what what would be the point. For a product business. You should probably, like, we didn't necessarily do that, but you should probably see how far can you get by bootstrapping so that your, your valuation is better. The further you, you get, then if you can show there is a product, I can show it to you, there are some customers, even though not, they're not funding, then it, it'll help your valuation. Although you can then overshoot and then get into a point where it's just a, you know, a run rate business where the investors then won't see the huge growth potential that you're going to try to show them, right? Because they just see the run rate business. So I think that's also a little bit of a danger in going too far in that direction. So I think there's a, you know, there's a sweet spot. So if you can bootstrap to the point where you've got some traction and you've got sort of good indicators that there's a lot of potential growth, that's probably the sweet spot for raising money. Although, I mean, obviously it's not the best time in the world to raise money right now. Yeah. And I guess product businesses compared to services, like there's a whole host of differences around like how you market that, how you, you get the brand awareness and things like that as well. Obviously, you had the technology people, you had the architects, you had the people building the product, right? And they could they could have been doing services or product ultimately. But then around that, I guess you have to wrap all these different skill sets for the different types of businesses. Yeah, correct. In services business, you need relatively little overhead, right? So you can have a thin layer of you know, HR and admin and finance and things like that. And they, they will basically manage it because, you know, like your senior people will do your selling effectively, right? The amount of, of marketing you actually need is, is limited. That does change. Um, and with a product business, there is a lot more of those kinds of overheads. Even in that, like our market was relatively 
focused. So it wasn't, you know, a huge, like we didn't need to market to a million businesses, but even so just getting that awareness out there is, uh, is a bigger job. Was it still public sector? Still to this day, principally public sector. We weren't thinking about ourselves as a Salesforce company or an AWS company. We were thinking about ourselves as a public sector technology company. So, Yeah, interesting. This episode is sponsored by our friends at Flow Republic. Flow Republic is the elite Salesforce Academy, helping architects all over the world to realize their goal of becoming a Salesforce certified technical architect. The success that architects are having with Flow Republic is incredible. So if you are on your journey to CTA, then I highly recommend checking out flowrepublic.com to understand how they can help you. We'll go back into your journey now, because um, that, that, that was really interesting to understand how that part played, um, that whole entrepreneurial journey played a part in, in where you've got to. But then you, you moved back to Denmark? Moved back to Denmark in 2019, largely because uh, we had our, our first daughter, we were planning, planning more, uh, more children, and I now have two. And, um, you know, my mother was also getting a little bit of an age. She was 84 at the time. You know, London is a phenomenal city, but it's not necessarily the easiest to manage with uh, two sort of high-powered jobs and uh, little kids and, you know, a family that you need to go home to on a regular basis. Copenhagen, in that regard, is a lot easier going. You know, it was kind of a pragmatic decision, you could say. You've mentioned studying has been a big part of your life um, and you joined Accenture. It seems to me, looking at your LinkedIn profile, that's really when you started focusing on on Salesforce certifications. Um, you had some before, but that's where you really started to put the foot down and, and go through the, the paces. Was that because you, at that point, you realized actually now my goal is to, to go for the CTA? Not initially. It's just, as I said, we, we, we were thinking about ourselves as a public sector technology company. We did do Salesforce implementations, but we did them as part of our own uh, software implementations, right? So we would sell you some public sector software. And then if you need a community cloud uh, or a service cloud implementation as part of that, you know, we'll obviously package that in. But we were never really focused on sort of the Salesforce ecosystem or, you know, the, our status with, with Salesforce as a partner. So certifications were appreciated, but you know, it wasn't something that we that we put a lot of uh, of empath- emphasis on in uh, in Argus. Obviously, when I came to Accenture, it's something that gets talked about at every team meeting. It's something that everybody is a little bit competitive about. It's something that uh, you know gets reward- re- rewarded in various ways internally. The incentives shifted, right? As you, <laughs> as you've noted, I like studying, right? When somebody tells me that that I'm going to get a prize for studying more, then that's kind of just going to happen, right? So I did 18 certifications in a year or something like that. I think I was the highest certification owner in Accenture that year globally. It was an important part of the of the goals that we were that we were set, and uh, you know, as also just when you come in as a as a lead architect, effectively, um, which was my role. I think it's important that you do demonstrate good behavior, right? If I want all of my pe- the people in my team to learn and to engage and to spend their own time doing it, then, you know, at least I can do it myself, right? Yeah. So you, you'd obviously been running your own business for a number of years. You'd been, I guess, still operating as in some sort of architecture capacity to some degree, obviously, along with running the business. What did you have to do to go back into a services business and, and be delivering enterprise level Salesforce projects across the board? Obviously, you mentioned that, yeah, there were parts of other engagements where you would tie on a community or a service cloud. But uh, did you have to really broaden your knowledge of the Salesforce platform at that point? I did. So I was really, really strong on on the technical platform, right? Like the part of like, how do all of the technical bits fit together? How do you do data modeling? How do you do advanced coding and configuration? And all of that stuff was, you know, bread and butter. 
if you'd asked me to configure Sales Cloud, I'm not sure I would have been super great at it at that point, right? So it's kind of, I guess it's a very different path to it than, than most people take, right? So so the, the things that most people would, would find quite basic were probably the things that I didn't have present, right? Because I'd been focused on, you know, how do I use this as an enterprise development platform effectively? That was my use of principal use of Salesforce. I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating slightly, but in that general direction. So I actually had to spend a lot of time like going through all of the, how do you do these business processes? How do you set them up? Um, how does it, uh, how does it work? Uh, how do I do reporting on top of it? Um, so it's really the, like the functional layer. I had to spend just a lot of time understanding how do actual salespeople and uh, service people use this platform in a real way, you know, instead of just focusing exclusively on the technical side. Now, that being said, obviously I was a lead technical architect. So most of the questions that come to me uh, are fairly advanced, but there's a broader context that I really needed to, uh, to, to, to focus in on. And then when you actually went for the review board, if, if you look back through your career, I guess you've probably got like a pretty ideal background for once you'd got that broader platform knowledge and functional knowledge, actually looking back at the strategy consulting, the, the pr- presentation, the, you know, being able to, to take someone on a journey, it kind of all aligns nicely to the CTA review board, right? It does. And I guess, you know, I probably had an easier time getting to the getting to the CTA than most people did, right? And it also didn't take as long, right? For me, it was six, eight months from, from start to finish. What would you mark as the start, though? When somebody told me, I, you need to sign up for the, for the CTA uh, 601 course. So that's basically how I got started. Uh, I, I had a chat with my boss saying, we, we, know, we need a CTA, right? We don't have any in the Nordics. Um, would you mind giving it a go? That was effectively what happened. I said, yeah, sure. I need to read up on this thing. So I, I joined the CTA 601 and then um, basically that was just before the summer holidays. And then I spent my summer holidays just studying furiously to be sure that I got it. And I also did sort of a very, very boring and super meticulous uh, preparation methodology where basically I've, I found a way of reading through the scenarios and converting everything to like lists of stuff that I needed to check off in order to have a, a viable solution. And then, you know, went through sort of six or eight mock exams where I just followed that methodology and, and updated it a little bit to the point where I was, you know, timing down to the minute how much time I was spending on the on the different sections. Right. And then uh, got to the review board just before Christmas and uh, thankfully passed the first time. I didn't think I was going to pass, to be honest, when I came out of the review board. But uh, I think you're right. I think, I, you know, the fact that I have had I, I have a like I had the strategy consulting background. I have a lot of pre-sales background. So, you know, the whole the communication aspect of the of it was was not something I really had to learn, right? That was just standard practice. And I had the I had the deep tech background, right? So what I really had to learn was how to, you know, what is the solutioning part? How do you formulate and justify good solutions on the Salesforce platform? That was really the key thing that I was missing, and which is probably different different for most people who go for the CTA. I think that's the that's for most people is probably the easy part of the CTA is figuring out okay, this is the right solution to this kind of requirement. Whereas you know when you come come into the like the deep uh, technical specifications around single sign on or integrations, that may be maybe harder for some people. And again, the communication aspect obviously is can can, can also trip some people up. Yeah, and also the fact that you'd studied consistently for so long, I guess, helps because a lot of people don't, they, you know, they finish their, their university and they might study for certifications, but they don't study for blocks of time like you have to with the CTA, whereas you would have been studying on and off for the last however many years, right? Yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to say how many that's going to date me so much, although I guess <laughs> you can work it out from what I said about my, my early career. 
Well, before I ask you the next question, which is about your books, I'm going to ask you, I, we all have 24 hours. You've got 24 hours in a day. I've got 20. Do you ever sleep? Well, I mean, I, I have very small children, so not so much at the moment. <laughs> Snap. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. But you've written two books. You know, you've done your CTA. You've studied eight university courses. You've got a PhD. Like, where do you find time to do all this stuff? I think it's just habit, right? I got into a pattern early on, work, study, that sort of thing is just, it's just something I do. It doesn't really require mental effort, right? I actually, you know, for me sitting down and, uh, and reading a bunch of technical papers, you know, I, I find it quite relaxing, right? It's kind of something I've done so many times, I know, you know, exactly how to do it. So I think the answer is that over time, I have habituated myself to doing some things that lead to those kinds of results, right? That means that it takes a lot less effort because you just do it, right? You know, if, you, if you're facing something new and you have to overcome this mental hurdle about how do I do it? You know, what's the process here? Um, can I do it? Uh, will I, you know, all these factors around it that makes things hard. And I think for me, I got over those many, many years ago and now it's just habit. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. I mean, it's, I, I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone that has and also run a business for several years well more than several years you know you you were running that business in london for a number of years grown it to 100 staff it's it's crazy it's uh, yeah it's some accomplishment and uh, i'm sure you are proud but yeah you should be it's uh, it's incredible so that that takes us on to the books um and you've written two two have been published your most recent book you talk about salesforce anti-patterns can you shed some light into what some of the key takeaways i guess for the book for for someone that should read it yeah. So the way that I, I like to explain anti-patterns very simply is think of an anti-pattern as something that seems like it's a good idea at the time you make the decision, but reliably leads to bad results. You know, let's say you've got uh, your account object and um, like you don't really know whether a trigger is the best or whether a flow is the best or how to structure it. And you've got different vendors telling you different things. And you decide to just say, you know what, guys, do what you want to do. And then, you know, three months later, you end up with two different triggers, with two different uh, different trigger frameworks, plus, uh, you know, a bunch of process builders and flows uh, doing various things on this object. And you can no, no longer figure out what actually should happen. So that's an anti-pattern called automation bonanza, which happens when you fail to have an ar automation architecture. When you fail to govern your automation architecture, that happens, right? And it can seem like a good idea at the time because, you know, People are telling you different things and it all sounds sensible and uh, you don't necessarily want to, to cause a lot of conflict or have these big alignment discussions, but reliably it leads to a bad result. So that's, a, that's an anti-pattern. One of the really great things with uh, the Salesforce ecosystem is just how much support there is around the right way of doing things, right? There are lots of patterns. There's the architect side. There's now the well-architected framework. There's just an awful lot of guidance on what to do. But there is not that much, like, I think there's a huge positivity bias in the Salesforce ecosystem. It's like, you know, we'll do things the right way and then we won't run into problems. And that's obviously not reality. Like, sometimes you do things that are well-intentioned but still lead to really bad results. Studying anti-patterns, um, like what I just described, can actually help you steer clear of these uh, sort of reliable uh, ways of, of, uh, of going wrong. And it could also sort of just broaden your architecture practice to sort of think about the reality that there are trade-offs. Back to the positivity bias, there's a tendency to think that you can have it all with a Salesforce solution. And that's not always true. Sometimes you do have to trade off things. Like architecture is fundamentally about trading off different concerns against each other and finding a, a solution that is satisfactory in your context. That's what I'm trying to do with, uh, with this book is just asking people to take a step back, consider, well, what if it doesn't go right? What if uh, I follow good practice and 
something still goes wrong? What if my stakeholders don't play ball? What if something changes along the way? What if my governance isn't effective? What can I do? And uh, again, there are, good, there, there are good things you can do, but you need to be prepared to actually engage with it. So who's it for? Who, who would get value from it? So I guess it's, it's not a heavily technical uh, book. You can read it as any kind of architect or functional consultant. I think, you know, even if you're a business analyst, um, it's, it's probably worth, uh, worth reading. Seem to be a lot of admins who are also uh, who also get a lot out of it. I, that, that's perhaps something I didn't quite uh, quite expect. But I guess admins in in, in the Salesforce world is such a broad role that actually knowing this is uh, is something that can be that can be really valuable because a lot of the stuff that you're doing actually has architectural implications. So while it's written for an architect slash functional consultant kind of an audience, I think uh, there's a lot of other people who who get value from it uh, just from understanding what can go wrong. Right? That's a uh, valuable in and of itself. Just seeing all of the ways that projects on Salesforce can take a, take a wrong, step, wrong step, even though it's not obvious. Do you think architecture on the Salesforce platform has become more challenging than like, I appreciate when you first started doing it, it was, um, you know, looking at public sector and, and architecture for products, but the role of an architect over the last, you know, 10 years on the Salesforce platform, would you say that has become more complex because of the breadth of the platform or is fundamentally architecture the same? No, I, I mean, there is a core discipline of architecture, which I think is the same and also is the same between, you know, all like all major enterprise systems. I actually think, you know, if you're looking at this whole category, there is a there is a core of knowledge that all architects need to be. But if we look specifically at Salesforce architecture, I think the emphasis has shifted, right? Twelve years ago, it was a much smaller platform. There was much less stuff built out. There were a lot more things where you needed complex um, technical solutions to the problems that came up. So it was a more difficult technical architecture discipline back then because you had to do a lot more stuff yourself. But if you then shift your perspective and you look at the platform now, it's obviously a much vaster platform, has a much broader scope. There are many more products in play. Businesses are using it at a much larger scale. So if you look at it sort of at the enterprise architecture level, like the Salesforce's role in the overall system landscape has expanded tremendously. And that means that while technical architecture might have gotten easier, all the rest of architecture has gotten harder because you now have a much more business critical function. You need to take into account uh, relationships with all of these other systems. You probably have responsibilities as a system of record that, you know, you wouldn't have thought about necessarily 10 years ago. And that means that, you know, you need to up your enterprise architecture game, as it were, um, to, to really be effective here. I think that's also why, you know, you, you, you're seeing architects on Salesforce um, become more specialized. And that's, there's a lot more people who specialize in B2B or in B2C or in marketing or, you know, we, they would describe themselves as functional architects or technical architects. So I think that's uh, that's part of just this growth of the platform and the growth of complexity um, at at the higher level. Mm -hmm. I think that's really good insight, and and because obviously a lot of people that will listen to this will, won't have been architecting Salesforce solutions ten years ago. You know, they might have only recently moved into the architecture world or or be on that journey. So it's interesting to know the to understand and to see the differences. And then your your first book was around architecting AI solutions, which is probably even even more topical right now than when you wrote it, right? Because everything's gone AI crazy in the market right now. With the expansion of AI, there'll be lots of architects out there that have never you know, never even thought about a solution that, that might touch AI or have an AI element to, to what they're designing. So what are the key considerations, would you say, right now for anyone that is being exposed to AI for the first time? Right now, it's obviously all about large language models, right? When I wrote my book two years 
uh, back, that wasn't really a big part of the whole landscape. We were thinking more about, you know, the, the business process automation side, right? How, do we, how can we get it to fill out your fields quicker, automate the, you know, data entry, all of these things. And now it's all about this generative AI uh, generating uh, text at scale. But I think what's common here in terms of um, AI solutions is that you have to basically shift your mindset from, you know, engineering deterministic solutions to dealing with something that's fundamentally probabilistic, right? An AI system, you know, it's not an algorithm, right? It's a model that's been trained on data that will give you correct answers with some probability or good answers with some probability, and a lot of the time won't, right? So again, you know, those are the key issues. If you also look at, you know, what Salesforce are including in the in their Einstein GBT trust layer, right? You can see that, you know, there's, there are pro problems around data retrieval, right? How do I trust this AI with my data? How do I uh, secure data masking so that I can have days of data privacy? How do I detect when it goes off the wall and gives me an answer that's completely inappropriate? Those are the kinds of, of challenges that come in because you're dealing with probabilistic rather than a deterministic system. You fundamentally have to think about it differently, right? You have to think about it in a framework where you should expect things to go wrong. I call the AI, it does something, it works, great. That will be the case 80% of the time, how, however much. But there will also be a substantial part of the time where it doesn't, right? It doesn't give you the right answer. It isn't uh, quite what you were looking for, or even even worse, it's uh, you know it's distinctly harmful, right? It's hallucinated something, it's made, made the, wrong, the wrong call. And you need to sort of balance that tendency towards, you know, having things automated and running more or less uh, seamlessly versus the fact that it can go horribly wrong in a, with a certain probability. Just thinking about it in that way, like thinking about it as a black box that you don't really know what uh, does, but that gives you an answer that's good with a certain probability, rather than thinking about it as, you know, I'm going to call my LLM and it's going to generate my sales email, right? That is, I think, a different mindset, and it's a mindset that most architects need to, to get their head around, because that is really different for, for AI solutions. It's different for all AI solutions. You effectively need to design systems with a degree of robustness and error correction that you're not used to. I'm a recruiter, right? That's what I do day to day. And I've forever been told that AI and you know, it's going to revolutionize recruitment, take away my job. What, what do you think the role of AI will play in the consult, having been in the consulting field for so many years? Do you see any change in the way um, that consultancies will operate, not necessarily implementing AI solutions, but with AI within their business? It'll depend on what happens, right? So right now, like the hype machine is in, is in overdrive, right? And if we assume that the hype machine is right and that very soon this AI is going to be good enough to fully replace 60% of intellectual labor, which I think is what the McKinsey Generative AI report sort of speculates, then obviously it's going to have a hugely transformative effect. You know, we're going to we're going to see lots of report writing and slide making and Excel analysis and uh, in Salesforce world configuration and uh, you know implementing user stories and all of that stuff. It's just going to going to go away and be done by a machine, and that will be hugely transformative. And we're going to need to figure out what well what does the business model like? How much of that productivity increase goes into people needing to find other jobs? How much goes into us doing our job better? How much goes into us doing different things? It's going to be hugely transformative if that happens. I have my doubts about whether that is actually going to happen, right? Because if you look at the current level of capability, what even GPT-4 can do right now, I don't think we're there, right? I think we're looking at something that is a nice productivity boost. And Lord knows we, we need it because, you know, services productivity has been stagnant for a good long time in most Western countries. You know, it will increase the productivity of knowledge work by some like 10, 20, 30% as it is right now. 
in the sense that, you know, I can write some documents quicker. I will still need to edit them and put them together, but I can write some documents quicker. I can do some analysis and brainstorming quicker. I can get more ideas uh, without having to, to to spend quite as much time on it. You know, Copilot, Microsoft Copilot comes out. I can get it to do, you know, a draft of my slide presentation. I will still obviously need to, to, to tweak it around, but it'll give me a starting point. That's nice, but that's not a, a revolution. That's just a boost, right? That's an improvement, right? It's a big improvement, but it's still just, you know, an incremental thing. It's not a revolutionary, radical innovation that's completely going to change the way that we do consulting or Salesforce implementation and so on and so forth. So we'll see. I think it could go either way, but I'm definitely not willing to uh, fire half of my team um, on the basis of what the AI does right now. Yeah, makes sense. And then a final question, what's next for you in terms of like, you know, you've ticked off so many goals. What's next on the, in, the, in the pipeline of goals for yourself? Well, right now we are, we are trying to build this, uh, this practice. So I mean, in a strategy consulting company called uh, Implement Consulting Group, which is one of the largest strategy, strategy consulting firms in, um, in the Nordics. And effectively, what we're trying to do is to build a practice that combines strategy consulting skills with Salesforce technical skills, right? It's, it's something that I would like to be able to achieve because I think actually in the ecosystem, we are seeing Salesforce is becoming more and more business critical. It's becoming a central part of how a lot of large businesses operate. And that means that they're going to need a different level of advice on how, that, how to use that technology strategically to achieve um, business goals. And that, I think, will require both understanding the technology and understanding the, the depth of the business. I'm quite excited about seeing how far we can take that idea of actually creating you know, a Salesforce strategy consulting uh, unit. So that's kind of my, my immediate goal for the next few years, I think, is trying to, to see how far I can take that idea. And do you see that, like in other countries, is that something you, you see and, and hear of often, that kind of strategic um, consulting, not just implementing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like it's a shift in the ecosystem. We see some people. I think uh, there's one other company in the Nordics trying to do it. Obviously, uh, McKinsey recently announced a strategic partnership with Salesforce uh, to try to do some of this. When I was in Accenture, I, it was always a goal to try to get more of this, but it was hard to actually actually make it work in practice. I think it's early days, right? A number of companies they're realizing that they need something like this, but exactly what the offering needs to look like and uh, who's going to be the players that they go to for advice. It's, it's not something that's been standardized yet, right? You know, I, I want a Salesforce implementation. I kind of know the partners I, I need to call, but to get this kind of advice, it's a little bit undefined still. So uh, we're, we're obviously trying to, to take our part of that space, but it's still work in progress. So it's not just purely like advising on a roadmap, but it's, it's how do, does the business achieve its, um, its goals underpinned by the Salesforce platform? Let's take an example, right? If I'm a company like uh, Implement that I work with, we do a lot of uh, sales transformations, right? You know, getting salespeople to do better selling, right? You know, improving their, their sales effectiveness. Right? That's, you know, that's something that's like a classic strategy consulting uh, role to go in and uh, train the salespeople, create a sort of a custom uh, training approach, uh, creating all of the change management around it, rolling it out. Traditionally, that hasn't had any system component, right? And that's something that a lot of these people are there complaining about. You know, we do all of this good work and they still have to work with a clunky system that doesn't support it and the, there, isn't this, uh, there isn't the right setup and all of that. So our hypothesis is that if we go in with a joint team, that then at the same time as we're advising on how to do the sales transformation, 
we're also advising on how to adapt their system to work with that and how they can do it in an effective way and where they might have uh, additional synergies by uh, by implementing system level changes and you know even bringing in like the the AI stuff that we were talking about before right well like where are the, where are the opportunities for automating parts of the journey can we do sort of you know dynamic training at the at, at various uh, points based on the on the material we're preparing all of that stuff if we combine that in a package that is a much more powerful proposition than doing each of these two things separately, right? Than hiring Implement to come in and do your sales transformation and then hiring Accenture to come in and do uh, some system changes afterwards. So that's the hypothesis, is that uh, that there is a there's a better value proposition there. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Well, look, I've really enjoyed the chat. I've um, it's it's been really um, eye-opening to to see how much someone can achieve um, and um, what you have achieved. So I'm sure some of our listeners will have questions. They might want to you know pick your brains on something you've mentioned or you know find your book. Um, so where's the best place? Or your books? Sorry, I should say. Um, where's the best place to find you for a question? And where can people find your books? Books are available either from Amazon um, or from Pact, who's the Pact Publishing, who's the publisher. Usually reach out to me via LinkedIn. I am always on LinkedIn, pretty much. Um, so I will promise to, to answer any queries um, if you send me a request. So just, you know, send me a connection request if we're not already connected and then uh, feel free to, to pick my brain. Awesome. Well, thank you so much and best of luck with what you're trying to achieve with Implement. And uh, yeah, excited to see how that goes. Thank you very much. So that's a wrap for this week's episode. And thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the chat. And if you did, please make sure you have subscribed for future episodes that are coming through. I would also be very grateful if you would consider leaving a review on your chosen podcast platform as five-star reviews will help us to reach more trailblazers from across the world. I look forward to sharing another episode with you soon. And thanks again.